welcome to Doing Diversity in Writing, the podcast where we, as writers, explore the do's and don'ts of writing inclusively, whether that be in terms of race, gender, ethnicity, class, sexuality, ability, and so on. Why are we here? To bring more depth and breadth to the characters in our fiction and represent them in the best way possible. My name is Bethany Ann Tucker, and with me is my co-host, Marielle S. Smith. Let's get started. How are you doing this week, Marielle? I am good, Bethany. I am right. I'm, I'm revising. Um, I'm in the middle of, of, of doing a next draft of my YA fantasy novel. And I got a bit stuck at the beginning because I really had to revise those first, like completely overhaul the first few chapters. But I'm beyond those now. And now it's I aim to write every morning for an hour, but I'm doubling that this at, at the moment. I, I write whenever I can. And uh, it's really nice to be sucked back into the story. How about you? Um, I'm tapping my fingers together and smirking at you to wait for this book to hit my desk. Your book? It- well, I mean, in the meantime, when I'm not writing, I am reading your book, the oh. one you just published. Yes, yes, I know. You want me to talk about that. Yes, um, I do. No, it came out this week, uh, The Queen's Enforcer. Of course, we record ahead of time so that we can do audio and yes. all of that. Um, so by the time everyone's listening to this, it will have been out for a few weeks. Yeah, but- so with this, yeah, this is our in-the-moment enthusiasm. Because it's yes. been out for three days now. It's been out for three days. More like two days and one or two hours because I was working on it late into the night because Amazon was difficult. But we got through it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, got, I, I know that feeling all too well. Yes, yeah. but it's out. Yeah. I've only, I mean, I've published a few books in the last couple of years, four, five. Yeah, I'm not going to count. Um <laughs> But this story I've been working on for eight years, I think, last time I counted off the years. And it it was um it it was one of those stories where you go back to it after you become a better writer and you go, I'm gonna add 60,000 words to it. This story started in the wrong place. And so there's like 60,000 new words in the beginning, and it's it was just I've written a few books like the Adelaide books and they came out easy and fast. And this one just came out. It was like, it took forever and I'm really, really happy. So yeah, it's, it gives me so much faith in like my own book because I've been working on that way over eight years. And sometimes I wonder whether I'm crazy that I'd never started again because like I, I started that book without, I didn't even know that there was that you could be a plotter or a pantser, right? That's when I started the book. Like I know knew nothing about writing. Um, so I'm now like I plot it's plotted now, sort of like in hindsight. And now I'm trying sort of like to sweep up the pieces and it's so hard. But knowing that that's kind of the mess that you had as well. Right. And now, and of course, like I edited the book like a draft ago or so, I think. Mm-hmm. And just now reading the final version and just seeing what you did to it, like it, it just, ah, it just makes, I'm just so excited about it because it's like, I, I've, I'm, I'm everybody, so it's really epic, dark, twisted fantasy. So everybody who I know who reads those kind of things, because it's a massive book. Yeah. I mean, it's about a it? quarter of a million words. And yeah. The next so I'm, one is another quarter. Yeah, so I'm like, everybody who I know, who I think can deal with that, or who I know loves that kind of stuff, right? I just tell them, like, this is the thing, you need to read it. Um, it's dark. <laughs> it's very dark. It is dark. It's very, like, I, I I was on page, I don't know, 11 or something, and I first started thinking, oh, oh, mm, I'm going to be sick. So that's kind of the, yeah. But, and I'm going to say this, and then we should get, get on with the show, yes. but um, one thing that gives me comfort when I think about writing these very long epic books or these books that take a lot of soul searching like some books we can write fast and some books even if we've written other books quickly other books just take longer to come out 
And yeah. it's not because we're bad writers. It's not because we're not disciplined. Some books just take that long to come out of us as artists. And I remember the fact, I, I have not double checked this, um, but I was reading the preface in a version of the Lord of the Rings book, the entire collection of the six books that are usually published as three books. And I think it took J.R.R. Tolkien like 20 years to finish. So yeah. every time I think about that, I'm like, okay, I'm doing fine. I'm all right. I yeah. can keep working on this. Yeah, but this is a but this is great because yeah, mine is not epic fantasy, but it is around one hundred fifty thousand words, so it's still big. Mm -hmm. It is a, still uh, it's still like paranormal fantasy, right? Well, yeah, well, it, it, it's it's young adult. It's just mm. not epic because it doesn't have that grand like what you have, right? Like I, I create my own world, of course, but it doesn't have that same political. Yeah, um, it, it is there, but it's not as it's not as at the forefront. Yeah. Um, but I like what you have because I, it's, it's sometimes I think, oh, like I will never be able to finish this whole trilogy. And actually I have nine books in my head for this world, right? Yeah. Um, but then I'm like, some books, what you said, like I, uh, I can, what, what year was it? 2019, I think. I published three romance novellas just within, within a year with a co-author. Co so that sped me up as well. But those were so easy and so just lovely to write there was no soul searching needed um for this for this project is completely different so I'm glad you mentioned that it's like you can do both and it depends on the project and the story yes and and how much time it back, needs going back to diversity and writing since that's what the show's about sometimes when yes. you're writing a diverse book it just takes longer that's the truth that I think that's when I shared the your book on Facebook, I, I call it, it's decidedly queer. So if that's your thing, go pick it up. Yes. <laughs> it's very queer. It's, it's decidedly it. queer. Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, so now that we've told everyone they're allowed to take time, if that's how long it takes, we should probably get yes. on with um, our show, which we are calling Diversity Within Diversity. That's what we're talking about today. Um, our episode, yes. Yeah. So we have brought this idea up before in quite a few episodes but I don't really feel that we've done enough elaboration yet and considering you agreed with the show I'm guessing you you're you're with me on that yes I know so it's, it's like we've mentioned it here and there but we haven't devoted an entire episode um to it and that's ending today but before we dive in and I think there's a lot to dive in I want to briefly mention the points those points that we've mentioned before just you know to refresh everyone's memory yeah go for it Okay, so in episode two, you talked about your husband ranting about black entertainment television because what he saw on there didn't fit his own definition of blackness. Yeah, BET. Um, not only was he not represented, but there was really no room made for him or people like him. And that reflected back on his experience outside of entertainment in his community. Um, so like we've said before, no African-American or Black person or any other kind of person is the same. Um, and BET, the Black Entertainment Network at the time when he was a kid, will resonate with some parts of the Black community in the U.S. while not with others. And that's mm -hmm. because our topic today, there's diversity within diversity within every community. There is. And, and this is why during episode three, we briefly discussed that it's virtually impossible to get like a full stamp of approval on your work, no matter how well informed and sensitive you are, no, ma no matter how many hours of research you put into something, or no matter how many people from this or that community that you talk to while you are writing your book. Yes. So we talked about the fact that there will always be people who feel misrepresented by your work or find your characters unbelievable at least one person in a community of 100 will probably say something. Yeah. Um, even if the other 99, I'll think you're fine. Yes. Um, no one is the same. Even if we share a bunch of lived experiences, one of us might still love something while the other absolutely hates it. Um, just think about every kid growing up in the same household has their own same personality, their own likes, dislikes. One kid likes pumpkin, one kid hates it, their own hangups, <laughs> principles, what they care yeah. for, don't care about, etc. Exactly. So in episode five, um, which is where we discussed how representation works, we touched upon why we often think of communities 
as like homogenous, right? Yeah, which is because there isn't um, much space for some of these communities yet, as we keep saying. And that makes the voices coming from minority groups, when you have one, it's amplified for what they are. So what that one voice is representing is amplified across the all group and what people think of them. In English literature, we've heard so many different voices from the dominant group that we never assume that, like, for example, all white, straight, cisgender men are the same. Right. And that is because they are so overly represented historically. And the only remedy here is to keep creating room for many, many voices from all of those communities that are still underrepresented until we like instinctively understand that one single representation from any of these group will never ever speak for an entire group of people, right? A part of those people, a part of that community, sure, but never ever for the community as a whole. Yeah. And then last but not least during episode six, um, we talked about essentialism as a pitfall for writers. We, we briefly discussed that evading this pitfall goes a long way in acknowledging the inner diversity within communities. Yes, because it means that you don't reduce your characters to traits they supposedly have because they are part of a certain community. And this automatically allows for greater diversity amongst the members of that community because it acknowledges that those character traits are not part of our DNA. You know, these are not inherent to this or that community of people. Okay. So that sums our previous episodes up as far as diversity within diversity is concerned. Do you agree? Yes. So let's dive a little deeper into the topic and what this idea means for writers. Yeah, let's do it. I, I okay. can practically hear you, you smiling over there. Yeah, it's my my. It's like we should have like a a beeper sound, like a like a an an, uh, an alarm sound for nerd alert or something, right? It's okay. Like when the alarm goes off. Okay. There's so many nerds in our community. <laughs> but it's fun because you actually see my face. Nobody else sees my face, and you're just like, oh, there she goes. I uh, should just like give like a st- a screen stage, like, and Marielle is smiling now. Get ready. Yes, uh, geeky smile. Okay, so. What I would like to do for this episode is start out by introducing the term intersectionality, which plays a crucial role in understanding not just that there is diversity within diversity, but also that identity markers and how they are linked to other identity markers is actually very context specific. And I want to do a proper introduction here. So it might take me a while to get to why and how this is relevant for writers, if you're okay with that. Yes. Um, I'm not going to even pretend you're going to get through this quickly, but it will be good. And we will bring it back to writing. So uh, let's get through some terms. Yes. So intersectionality is a term often used within academia, which is also where I first encountered it during a course on gender and ethnicity in Europe, which was taught by the professor who is um, within the Netherlands, known for her work on intersectionality. She is the one... um, who it's, it's originally, and I will say a little bit about that, um, it originally was coined in the US and she was the one who introduced it to the Dutch audience. So um, this was of course, this was a course in, in which we analyzed multiple novels, films and other cultural artifacts um, through the lens of intersectionality. All right, so this is not a word that we've, we've made up ourselves for the podcast. We're not taking this leap ourselves. It's, no. it's an established term that yes. uh, analyzes cultural products such as fiction, correct? Yes. And um, the thing about intersectionality is that what it's really, what it should be seen as is as a lens through which to look at the world. It helps you see certain things you might not have noticed without that lens. All right. Can we break down what this lens makes us see? Yes, of course. Two things, really. First of all, seeing something through an intersectional lens makes you realize that no one is ever just one thing. We're all made up of multiple identity markers. Which is something we've talked about before as far back as you and I when we introduced ourselves on this podcast. Yes, it has. And while that is a very important notion like in itself, right? It's not what made intersectionality this revolutionary concept. Um, and it really, well, when it was first coined, it really was. I think it's still actually a revolutionary concept. Um, 
that's another point in another episode. Um, I'm not going to get off track here. I'm just going to keep no, you no, going. No. Yeah, I'll get, I'll be focused. Um, so but what made it so, like what made it revolutionary um, is that an intersectional lens allows you to acknowledge um, these different identity markers and see how they might influence each other in different contexts. Identity markers intersect, intersect, right? So this is where the term intersectionality comes from. And how they intersect in a given space and time influences how they affect your place in society, the kinds of stereotypes that exist about you, the kinds of expectations people have of you, and so on, depending on the context that you find yourself in, right? It's very context-specific. Very. It always makes me think of graphs and algebra, to be honest. You have two lines meeting, and then you have a point. But the same set of identity markers might affect you in a certain way, in a certain era, or in a certain place, and entirely different in another place in another time period. Like you, Marielle, you're a white queer woman. When living in the Netherlands, your rights were exactly the same as anyone else's. And whenever you go back, again, they're exactly the same. But now you live in Cyprus, you still have those same identity markers, but you no longer have the same rights. Exactly. Now it's more of a thing I need to hide in certain contexts, um, like when I'm with my partner's family. Um, So yeah, place, location, like those are really important axes of differentiation, right? As they call it an intersection of thinking. There's your race, there's your ethnicity, your gender, sexuality, your age, um, your religion, your class, but also your upbringing, like whether you grew up in an urban or rural area, which country you're from, et cetera. These are all relevant to how your different identity markers, that's what we call them, to how they intersect. And like, I always try to explain the concept using the game of Mikado. Is, do, do you know this game? It's this game where you have to pick up sticks without moving any others. I think we call it pick up sticks in the US and I've played it maybe once, like 30 years ago. <laughs> okay, well, I, I, can't, I, I, I cannot for the life of me remember when I played it for the last time and whether I ever played it correctly. But it's this game where you have to pick up sticks without moving any, I mean, moving any of the others, then you get points and stuff. And there's like different markings on the sticks. So you have different kinds of points. There's a whole system. But what intersectionality says is that you cannot do that. You cannot pick up a stick without moving any of the other sticks. As soon as you move one stick or identity marker for us, it immediately shifts the field. And sometimes it shifts the field only a little, and sometimes it shifts the field a lot. Remember you telling me about the lawsuit that eventually led to the coining of the term intersectionality. That was a big shift, wasn't it? Yeah. So that's the 1976 De Graven read. Is that how you say that? Would you say it like that? Uh, I would say De Graven read. Okay. So the Graven read versus General Motors case. Um, it always surprises me how people in the U.S pronounced like Dutch and German last names. So that I'm always a bit confused there. Um, but the case. We do um, a lot of guessing and then we ask our friends until we reach a consensus and it may not be right. Yeah, so we're going for with the, the graph and read versus General Motors. So this is a case in which five black women sued General Motors for never hiring black women. Which is discrimination. It is, but it's not as simple as that. Because what General Motors did was simply say, like, what do you mean we're discriminating based on gender and race? We have women in the workforce and we have black people working for us. Like, we're not discriminating. Yeah, if you're only looking at the very surface. But the only women they hired, if you look deeper, were white. And the only black people they hired were men. So, yes, technically they were not discriminating based on gender and race, but they were since they never hired on black men, they were discriminating on the intersection of gender and race. Exactly, legally, they weren't discriminating based on gender and race even. And this is why Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a black legal scholar who analyzed this and similar cases, this is why she coined the term intersectionality because like what you said, General Motors, they weren't discriminating based on gender or on race. They were discriminating where the two met. Yeah. So these women weren't discriminated against because of their gender, nor were they discriminated because of their race. They were discriminated against because of their race and gender. I'm just saying it again because it, it, it can take a few minutes to actually understand it. 
Yes, and this is why I wanted to do a proper introduction because adopting this kind of lens, we're so not used to that because we're so used to just looking at the surface and putting things in particular boxes. And this lens will force you to look beyond this sort of first interpretation, right? Yeah. So yeah. So yeah. So what? So we just. So they were indeed what you said. They were discriminated against because of their race and because of their gender. And this is why it is important to look beyond that surface, like beyond any identity marker, um, to how they intersect with the other identity markers that are present in a specific context for, in a for a particular character, like in writing. Yeah. Exactly. So going back to Crenshaw. That, that was the lawyer, right? I get names yeah. mixed up sometimes. Going back yeah. to Crenshaw, who came up to this term, this idea didn't come out of the blue. No, no, it didn't. Um, in the decades before her already, many women thinkers of color had already drawn attention to this issue. They, for example, pointed out how a lot of feminism is mostly, if not only, aimed um, at white women. So I'm not talking about feminism today, but like first wave, second wave. At right? the time, I mean, this, at the this time, case yeah. was 76, right? Yes. Um, so why, at that time, it was mostly white, straight, middle-class women. Yeah. So at least in the U.S., there wasn't a lot of diversity within the feminist movement. Again, we're talking historically. Um, yes, early, early on. on yeah. <laughs> definitely early on and even towards the middle, which is yeah. one of the reasons I sometimes struggle with admiring some of the early feminist movement icons. As much as I recognize where some of the rights came from, I also struggle with the fact that this was not for all women. Yeah, I, I, I understand. I have that same struggle. But that's exactly what these women think is of color of writing about, that within the feminist movement, it wasn't always acknowledged that different women have different needs, which led to different demands. Yeah. So during the first feminist wave, white women fought for the right to vote and have jobs. Black women at the time weren't just fighting for their rights as women within society as a whole, but also within their own communities for their rights, but and beyond their own communities, yeah. outside their communities for their rights as Black people. So they had their, like, their community rights that they needed, but also the rights as women that they needed. They were battling sexism and racism at the same time. Exactly. And don't forget that a number of the white women fighting for the right to vote were not necessarily in favor of a universal right to vote, right? They wanted equality, but amongst their own ranks, their own white ranks. And this is where another identity marker comes in, that of class. Because when we look at the fights that were fought during the first feminist wave, what we see is that those white women who were fighting for the right to vote, they were not race inclusive, but they also weren't exactly class inclusive. Yeah, which wasn't necessarily acknowledged at the time. No. Um, definitely wasn't acknowledged when I was first taught about feminism, but that's a whole different thing. Um, indeed, different women do have different rights, and thus there is a need for a different fight or a different struggle to get those rights. Yes. So th that's what the term intersectionality was coined for, right? So that these voices who have a tendency to disappear into the margins had a chance to be heard. Because looking at the world through an intersectional lens helps us acknowledge the diversity within diversity. Because there really is no universal woman or universal Black person or universal Muslim. It just doesn't no. exist. No, like, like, likewise, there's no universal gay or no universal working class individual, right? Because for every individual, those Mikado sticks, they touch each other in different ways. And, they, and we're, like, we're all made up of not one, but multiple sticks. You know which organization truly seems to understand this? Which one are you thinking of? Black Lives Matter. They truly seem to understand that you can only rise as a community if anyone, and not anyone, everyone in the community rises. Like for them, it's actually all Black Lives Matter. Not some Black Lives Matter more than others. Which is what we've seen and still sometimes see in women's rights movements, that someone, some women's lives matter more than others. Yeah. And the same has gone and sometimes still goes for civil rights movements. Um, back in the day, um, Black women were seen as traitors if they dared to speak up about the inequality between Black women and Black men and decided to join the feminist cause. So the Black rights they were fighting for in their time didn't cover all the different needs in the community. Exactly. And 
Black Lives Matter has learned from that clearly. And like, so I'm gonna, I wanna quote a piece from their website, but they state there is the following. We affirm the lives of black queer and trans folks, disabled folks, undocumented folks, folks with records, women and all black lives along the gender spectrum. Our network centers those who have been marginalized within black liberation movements, end of quote. I have to appreciate just how explicit they are. They're even explicit about the fact that they learned from previous black liberation movements. Exactly. Right? Right. So to give a more tangible example of what it means in practice, um, in 2016, Black Lives Matter Toronto disrupted Toronto Pride because they felt it was including the Black LGBTQAI plus community. So what they did, they did a sit-in and they had this list of demands, amongst which was that they wanted the hiring of Black transgender women and Indigenous people on the Pride Toronto staff to become a priority which is basically demanding the centering of people have been marginalized before. Exactly. And they also demanded that future pride parades wouldn't have any police floats. And they made the organization promise to sit down with Black Lives Matter Toronto for a meeting within the next six months. Those police, those police floats, um, I guess that says a lot, right? For a lot of white people, a, a police presence might make them feel safe, but not necessarily for some of these other people that should be involved. I know, and, and this, the thing is that, that this particular pride, right? It happened just a few weeks after the Orlando shooting. So yes, it made a whole lot of sense to increase police presence, right? Yes. I mean, but there's a huge but. Yeah, there's a huge but, and, and the balancing can be difficult. If you if you don't use that intersectional lens, you might completely write off these other concerns. If you just think LGBTQIA+, you, then you think pride, and you don't consider that there are identity markers beyond that that intersect with those involved in pride. And you might not think that the fact that a police presence might make the Black people who fall under that umbrella feel very unsafe. Right, so it's not just about like woman or man, black or white, straight or gay, able or disabled. It's about how all of these meet and work together. Yeah, because white women deal with different struggles and expectations and stereotypes than black, Asian, First Nation women do and so on. Right, like white lesbian women, you know, they also deal with different struggles, expectations, stereotypes than white straight women, but also then black lesbian women or Asian lesb uh, lesbian women or First Nations lesbian women. And if we change gender instead of race, the same goes for white lesbian women or lesbians of color versus white gay men or gay men of color. And we haven't even talked about location of where any of these people live on top of that. No. No. <laughs> no. Which, like we said, is such an important um, identity marker or access yes. of differentiation, yeah. I've had very different rights depending on where I lived. And yeah. if we were to add class on top of that, it becomes immediately clear like that um, a black upper-class lesbian woman, again, still dealing with different struggles, expectations, stereotypes, than the black lesbian woman from the working class. Yeah. Um, same thing if we swap out black for Asian, Mediterranean, lesbian, transgender, non-binary, or if you change anything else in that equation. Yes, because you could add religion to the mix, country, state, province, even town that we, we or the character that you're writing grew up in, whatever, abled or disabled, whether that's a visible or invisible uh, disability, how old are we in whatever specific context, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So when we are writing inclusively and adding diverse characters to our fiction, fiction it is really important to look beyond what might seem as the single most important identity marker for a character. You, you kind of, it's not math, but you kind of have to do the math. You have to add it all together, especially <laughs> yes. since the importance of that identity marker depends on the context you're in. It's, it's not a statistic given. In certain situations, as your story progresses, one identity marker might be more relevant than another. Absolutely. Or a particular intersection of a character's identity marker might become more relevant all of a sudden because of a shifting context or situation. Um, 
But yes, when you write your characters, it's so important not to reduce them to just that one thing, right? But also to understand and think through, like once you have a firm grasp of all the identity markers that they're made up of, how particular combinations might affect particular contexts and introduce specific obstacles for this or that character, how it influences how they respond to these obstacles in their environment, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, for example, if you have a white male character and you decide that they are gay, you have to think through how that might affect anything else in their story and the story overall. And if you have a Muslim male character and you decide to make them gay too, you have to think through how that might affect their story and the story as a whole differently than it does for your white gay character. Not to mention which place they are in, what kind of religious practices they and their community specifically practice within the umbrella of being Muslim or whatever religion that you may or may not have assigned to your white character. Yes. And if, you know, in the next book, you have a Black male gay character, you have to think through all of this again, in combination with whatever else this character has going on in terms of class, education, upbringing, family dynamics, ability, whether the character is cisgender or not, how old he is, and so on. Or if that book has a lesbian Muslim, you have to think through how her life, background, character, arc, personality might be different from that gay Muslim male character you had in the previous book which will also depend on all the other differences between them and how they intersect each individual character. Again, yes. I wanna say, I, I'm, I'm kind of sounding like a broken record here at this point, but this is something Cassandra Clare pulls off really well in her Shadowhunter series. Which I still haven't read. And I would like to really quickly just point out the fact um, that your character could be black and Muslim, black or Jewish, Muslim mm -hmm. and not a person of color, like just so many things. But yes, yes, I still yeah. have not read Cassandra Clare. I have it on my shelf, but I don't know if it's the first book yet. Okay, we need to discuss that because I think at this point it <laughs> kind of starts to sound like it's compulsory reading here, right? For our Representation Matters course. I mean, it may not uh, be compulsory reading for our audience, but I think it's starting to become compulsory reading for me. Yeah, when we're done recording, we'll, we'll, we'll look at which book you have exactly and whether I am okay with you starting with this one, okay? But, All right, so let's talk about how she yeah. pulls it off. Just don't spoil the story for me and everyone else. <laughs> Try? Um, uh, okay, just do what you yes. have to do. Yeah, okay. Okay. So in her entire series, the entire Shadowhunter world, um, Claire has multiple male characters who love men, right? Whether they're bisexual or gay. So we have Alec Lightwood, a white Shadowhunter, um, who I talked about before, and he really struggles with his sexuality. But Alec's not only a white male cisgender character, he is young, he's 18. He is the firstborn son of parents who did an awful lot of evil in the past. Um, that's not a spoiler, which they are now trying to atone for. And for him, this comes with this huge sense of responsibility. He wanted to be better and prove himself. And, you know, he wants to be a role model for his younger siblings because of that past, because of his very particular, because he is the firstborn in this particular family. That's a lot and of his, pressure. He is under a lot of pressure. Yes. Um, and it's eating at him. So on top of that, the Shadowhunter community, which is his community, it's all he's ever known, is extremely anti-gay. It's just not done. It doesn't even exist in the open, right? It's just, it's unspoken. It's Got it. not to be, yeah, really bad. So we also have Magnus Bain. I also mentioned him before. So he's ha half Indonesian. Uh, so his human part is Indonesian because he's half demon too. He's old, like, he doesn't look old but he is like a quite a few centuries old. Like it's like, is he 400 years old? Is he 800 years old? That's kind of like, he's trying to, he's playing with that a little bit, you know, like uh, he doesn't okay. want people to know how old he is, how, how old he is exactly. He's a bit vain. Um, <laughs> I want right? to call him he age fluid. Yes. So, but he is, so he's a very powerful warlock. And he's accumulated a lot of wealth over the centuries, right? And he doesn't seem to care about his sexuality at all. Like he loves flaunting with it, right? Not in this series, that's that's set in our time, which is the one in which he meets Alec, but also in the series that's set at the end of the 19th century, right? Um, and in, so in, he doesn't really seem to care about his sexuality at all. So in the latter, the, the one that's set in the uh, end of the 19th century, 
there's also a werewolf leader who's into men, right? And he's also this wealthy and powerful guy. And just from the way he behaves, I get the feeling that he's not a stranger to nobility. Like he's really a gentleman. And I think that explains, I'm not going to spoil anything here, but I think that explains some of the differences between him and Magnus in their behavior, because Magnus was not born into status, right? He created status. Got it. Um, so that you, so that makes, they are different. And I think that explains it really well, why they are different. So, but this werewolf guy, um, he is at the time also older than Alec is, right? Not as old as Magnus, because, you know, he's a werewolf, he's not immortal, but he is older. And he too, he doesn't hide himself or who he's sleeping with. He seems very comfortable with his sexuality. So they're all into men, but all three of these men are also decidedly different with very different backgrounds. Yes. And what they have in common, kind of, is that they're all very powerful beings, right? Alec is a shadow hunter. So this means that he's on this planet to defeat demons, right? Okay. Uh, Yeah. So that's kind of like, he's a warrior. But he's much younger than both Woolsey Scott, the werewolf, and Magnus Bane are in the story, right? So maybe Woolsey and Magnus, maybe they struggled with their sexuality before the story starts, right? But we don't get to see that. Like at the time of the story, they are already powerful beings. They have more life experience than Alec has when we met Alec. When we meet Alec, they are wealthy, uh, all of which helps to not give any fucks about what people think of your sexuality, right? Like if somebody tells if somebody tells off Magnus Bane, like he can just disin <laughs> like he could just disintegrate them or whatever, right? Like he he yeah, don't you don't mess with him. So it's very easy not to care about your sexuality if you're so powerful. And the same goes for Rulesy Scott, like he can just turn into a werewolf and eat you. Like if you say anything nasty, right? But Alec is like young. He's still he's very young and he's still in training. Plus, he grew up in this community that is super anti-gay. And like the warlock and werewolf community, they are not like that. They're much more open-minded. They don't seem to care either who's so, sleeping with whom. <laughs> I'm, I'm really getting that point. They do not care. Yeah. So what I'm hearing <laughs> just is that... just want to that. <laughs> is that Claire, the author of the story, has taken these identities and intersected them and made it really um matched it with what's going on matched it with the lives you know integrated into the story in the world very deeply in a way that's natural um which is something that all we all still need to do that we already do when we are writing and fleshing out our narratives um story feeds character character feeds story good writing always includes characters that make sense when we're considering where they're from what's happened to them before what they've encountered in their lives um the emotional baggage they've acquired etc so adding this to the intersectional lens um through the uncovering of who your character truly is and what they want and need it really gives us a firmer grasp on our characters. And I don't know, for me, it, it makes characters seem much more deep in the world, much more real and just makes us better writers. Yes. So this helps you to create, like adding that intersectional lens just helps you create more realistic, more full characters who will res- resonate with your readership. And helps you avoid, you know, characters all looking like each other. <laughs> Yes, like all, yeah, yeah, but because you understand that you have to move beyond what seems like the big thing in their lives, like, for example, their race or the sexuality, right? It yeah. intersects with whatever else they have going on. Yep. And it shapes everything. And it shapes every single character arc in different ways. This, um, this actually gets me really excited because it allows to create characters that are just so rich and characters that you remember yeah yeah and and characters that are so like for example with with because of the way claire does her characters Mm -hmm. i don't feel that any of them that she is trying to speak for entire communities with through this character because they are such individuals and because they are like what you said they are so rich Mm, so yeah. you just know because of that that they are not speaking for the gay community or the bisexual community or whatever they stand for themselves exactly yes yeah so 
shall we attempt to list how this intersectional lens can help writers write more diverse characters, which is what we came here to do today. Yes, I think we've touched on it, but let's really focus and break it down. Yes. Okay, so aside from <laughs> everything we've already said on the matter in this episode uh, and in previous episodes uh, as well, intersectional thinking can help writers because it reminds us that everyone is made up of multiple identity markers, right? The norm within Western literature has been white, male, cisgender, heterosexual, educated, well-off, and so on. That's already six like identity markers. Now, yeah. if you're just trying out this writing of new characters, you might feel tempted to start with characters who quote unquote deviate from this norm by just one or maybe two markers, right? So if you want to tackle ability, you create maybe a disabled white man or white boy, or perhaps a disabled white woman or girl, right? But black indigenous and people of color, they have disabilities too, right? Physical and mental. And disabled black indigenous and people of color, they have a sexuality to, to an agenda, right? They can be cisgender, they can be transgender, they can be gay, straight, bi, asexual, all of them. So if, for example, you want to add a trans character, you don't have to stick to a white trans character, right? Dare to play with those Mikado sticks. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Don't be afraid to mix it up. You really do. Um, so it, it might feel safe as a writer to tackle identities that are only a little bit different at first, you know, like put your foot across the line a little bit, yeah. um, like, like only one significant identity marker removed from what we expect to read about. But again, if that's all we're doing, it's not fully representative of, you know, rich full worlds um, that we live in and we enjoy reading. And Though these voices that are like maybe one marker off from the norm or what has been the standard canon um, need to be amplified and multiplied as well as all of these identities markers that exist beyond that. There is so much diversity around us, so much more diversity around us than just deviating by one, not just moving one Mikado stick. Most of us are made up of many different non-normative identity markers. Like, I like to ask, what is normal? Like, really, exactly. what is normal? Exactly. But this is, so this is, the, so this is the point I'm trying to make is that what we often see is that there's only so much, like when, when we do diversity, there's only so much diversity that we dare to do. And there's only room for so much, right? So I, I have this really telling example. I don't think you've watched Glee, did you? I think I've seen 20 minutes in a dentist office and I didn't realize till later what I was watching. Okay, I don't know. I don't know if I ever finished this series, but I, I was a huge fan uh, very early on. So this this there is this story about how the character of Kurt Hummel came about, and and I will uh, I'll, I will add a because I pulled it up from Wikipedia, so I'll add the link. So this is Glee, right? This is Glee. So Kurt Hummel is like the gay, the, the white gay cisgender character in Glee. Right. Mm -hmm. And he the, the, the so the the actor, uh, Chris Colfer, he auditioned for the part of A.D. Abrams, who is a guy in a wheelchair. Okay. Um, but somebody else got that role. Kevin McHale got that role. Right. And Ryan Murphy, who created the show, he really liked Colfer. Right. Um, so the person who was going to play Kurt Hummel. So what he did he created the role of Kurt Hummel specifically for this actor because he was so impressed, right? Okay. And in that process, he scrapped a, a plant character named Rajesh, right? Which is like a Hindu name. So I'm thinking an Indian or a, a, an Indian character or a, a Pakistani Pakistan, character. Perhaps. That's what I'm thinking, right? So instead of simply creating this or writing into the script that the character in the wheelchair the white boy in the wheelchair is also gay right because they were so impressed with Chris Colfer's audition they felt the need to add a separate gay character a white male and then they ditched a character with a Hindi name okay. which so you see my point is so it's like why why couldn't I'm not saying that Kevin McHale is not an amazing uh Artie Abrams because he is but it goes I just want to show the thinking 
right? It's like, oh, but we were, we were, we are looking for a guy in a wheelchair, but you may, you would make a great gay character. What do we do? Well, they can be, you can be gay and disabled, right? That, that is a thing. And to top that off, like they, so they scrapped this, um, this character who was different in terms of ethnicity. But why can, why can a guy with a Hindu name not be the gay kid in the wheelchair? I mean, the answer is that it's possible. Yeah, so that's the point I'm trying to make. Was and I, I do like I love the show, but this is sort of like what I mean when I say often it seems there's only so much room for diversity, and we tend to just give really big identity markers to an, a character who is normative, right? So now we have a gay white boy, and we have a white boy in a wheelchair, but we don't stack them. We don't stack them. Yeah. And I think, and I see that a lot. That's why I wanted to make this point, basically. No, I'm glad you actually brought in a a real world example, because for me, that that helps solidify it in my brain a bit more. Um, So intersectionality, as we keep talking about, it really helps us as writers to think through difference and acknowledge that within our writing. Again, diversity is a very broad concept and covers more than we might think. Diversity is also about different hobbies one could have, some of which might make you unpopular, while others give the character like really cool, cool kid status. Um, diversity can include whether your parents are divorced, whether one of your siblings is in jail, whether you are an only child or have five or 15 siblings to look after. Believe me, having a ton of siblings will make you different. <laughs> yeah, I was, I can't I was walk thinking. through the grocery store without being stared at. I was thinking about I know. I know. And I'm, yeah. So, and I'm the youngest child. So that makes a completely different experience oh. for me. And you're the oldest. Yes. And that is part of diversity. You should actually like know it, it's helpful to know what character, where your characters fall in the lineup because it does affect your personality and your experience. You will experience family differently depending on where you are in the lineup of children born. And everyone can relate to that, whether you're a single child or whether you're yeah. one of 12. Yes. Yeah. It's like, I, I'm thinking Malcolm in the middle kind of idea, right? Yeah. Like there's, there's people real. who are like middle, you're in the middle, you're the, the oldest or the youngest. I do in, in my, in my book, I have a, um, my YA fantasy. I have these, um, this, one of the characters who's closest to my protagonist. He's the mm-hmm. youngest, right? Uh-huh. So there is this thing. And he, so he, he also, lo- so his, his two older brothers, they practically look like twins. They look very similar. They're not the same age. But they look very similar. They are very similar. And he looks entirely different, but he is also different. Like he's not popular. Like they are really good. Like one of them is gay and the other one's straight. So, but they, they're always like making out with everybody. So they like, so there's always this thing. And then, so he, it makes him so much the youngest child because they keep trying to, drag him along and show how it's done and he's just very resistant to it <laughs> um the reluctant yeah, baby in the yeah. family yeah the reluctant like and and so he's like the mama's kid right as well he is the baby in the family uh, yeah so diversity yeah. can be as incidental as just acknowledging that and bring that into your writing like this character yeah. was the oldest and they had to deal with this this character is an only child and always wants friends or an only yes. child and doesn't know how to make friends like it it matters and it makes exactly. things interesting yeah yeah so yeah so I was also gonna say um when I'm thinking of these characters right so the two older boys they're clearly extroverts and the younger mm-hmm. one is an introvert right that happens within the same family Yes. Um, so yeah, all of that, all of that affects how you're viewed, how you're treated within your own community, outside of it, depending on the context that you're in. Absolutely. So the second reason why intersectionality thinking uh, or intersectional thinking, misconjugated that, is a useful tool for writers is that knowing that everything shifts when one or more identity markers shift. Um, just keep that in mind. It'll help us think through this intersecting of differences and what that means for our characters, their paths, their choices, their hopes, their dreams, specific specific obstacles in the world they inhabit. I mean, it even matters for the people that they will, you know, naturally know or run into. 
And I have like just pops in my head. I know you want to scream at me because of the time, but just in my head, it popped up this brilliant example. Go for it. Okay. So there's this new show. I'm, I'm highly addicted. It's called Young Royals. It's on Netflix. It's a Swedish show. Okay. So this will have spoilers. So if you haven't watched it yet, stop listening right now. Okay. But it's, it's about, so it's about, uh, it's about a prince, right? He's the second okay. born. So he's not the crown prince. And he's sent off to a boarding school and he falls in love with this other boy, right? Okay. Which is, it's already a problem, right? Because he is, he is a role model and he's constantly compared to his older brother, who is the crown prince, right? So he's already struggling with that sexuality, okay. um, even though it's like Sweden, right? So it's like, it's, it's very open-minded, uh, but it's because he's a prince. And then halfway through the series, you're going to hate me because I want you to watch it and I'm going to spoil it for you. <laughs> The brother dies. The older brother. Yeah. So they have just so 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 this kid who is struggling so much with his sexuality, he has just told the other boy, whatever I said about not being gay and whatever, I take it back, right? I think we should spend some time together. And then the brother dies. So that shifts everything because now he is the crown prince, right? He was a prince, which was a big deal, but now he is the crown prince. So everything shifts. Yeah. Absolutely everything shifts. And that is so, the, the show does it so well. It's, I really recommend watching, watching the so show. So that's it's how really where well intersectionality done. keeps mattering and shifting yeah. in the story and we and we need to watch that, but it actually can create tension and, and flow in the story as well. Because you know, right? When when at the end of the third episode he gets the phone call, right? Mm-hmm. You just know, right? Like as soon as he hears hears his mother, the queen, say, "Eric is dead," right? In Swedish, uh, because I don't do dubbing. Um, you just as a as a, as a, as, a, as a as as the audience, you know, this ruins everything because it influences everything. The whole field just shifted. Uh, yeah so just 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 very i know you look at my face right now and i'm peeking <laughs> over this this show it's really well done uh, but that is just such a clear example for me that like that changes everything yeah in that particular context again no i think it's a really good example um so can you can you link what we were talking about to um I'm completely lost now. You're completely lost. All right. I'll bring us back on topic. So as we pointed out before, um, and I'm going to link this to some discussions, when we're looking at writing through an intersectional lens, it also helps us understand that we cannot make everyone happy. Yeah. That was the bullet point I was looking for on my list. Yeah. And so we've talked about this. We've talked about this before indeed right? That yeah. you cannot make everyone happy. And, and yes, it's, it's good to bring that up again, because if you think, if you think diversity within diversity, like the Asian kid who sucks at math, but he's like, he's like this mad poet, right? He might be thrilled to read or, or she um, to read about an Asian character who does really well in their English class, right? But the Asian kid who hates both maths and who hates poetry and, you know, just literature, and all he wants to be, or she again, or they uh, want to be a professional basketball player, they might be so offended that, yeah, we have another representation of an Asian kid who doesn't do sports, right? Yeah, you can't win them all. Yeah. So this is one of the reasons why it's so important that we create a multiplicity of diverse characters who are diverse across the board, right? In the end, we're all unique individuals and our diverse characters should be too, no matter which community they belong to. Okay. So for me as a writer, the good news is you can't make everyone happy. Yes. And that's actually really freeing for me. Um, You can only do your best by doing your research to create well-rounded characters, make them their own unique person, stay clear from the repeating and known and harmful stereotypes, and just embrace it as a writer to create that full rich world like we were talking about um, the Shadowhunter series. Yeah. So the other good news. Oh, there's more good news. There's more good news. Yes. It's that it isn't, uh, it isn't actually that hard to create diversity within diversity, 
right? Uh, like you've already mentioned the work we do as writers when we flesh out our characters. So when you do your character profile, right? Whether you do the 20 questions you ask your characters, the 40, the 100 version, doesn't matter. Just when you do those, try to be aware of all the different identity markers that you can appoint to your character, right? So include those that go beyond just race or gender or sexuality, right? And then think for yourself how they might intersect in any given point in the story that you are about to write. And if you have a hard time figuring out the latter, do the necessary research. Yes, lots and lots of research, which yes, it doesn't mean that you have to go into a library and lose yourself in the basement for five years. That's not what we're talking about. It, it can be really fun because we're looking at human yeah. stories. We're looking at what people have experienced, those around us. We're being curious about the world. Yes, but, curiosity. I think that's a really good one. Yeah, curiosity, going out, experiencing yeah. things. Like literally I, years ago when I was studying how to write, um, a very famous writer was like, go take a basket weaving class you'll probably meet somebody that can end up in a book and you'll know how to weave baskets. I forget who said it. I would tell you if I did. Um, But the idea is to just keep going and experiencing things and you will become richer as a writer. And if you have a particular character, go try to experience things that will help you write that character. So we'll keep saying it over and over again, research. Um, But I mean, I'm really excited about it. It just, it, it's good for us as people. It's good for us as writers. It's good yeah. for stories. It's good for readers. And I am looking at the clock and I think that's all for today, right? Yes, all for- I want to say about the research is like, depending on the characters that we write, we might already be exploring their jobs, right? Or mm-hmm. what it's like to um, grow up in a foster home or in, a, in an orphanage, right? We might already... So why not do the same kind of research on their race or their their ethnicity, their gender, their sexuality, their abilities and abilities, et cetera, et cetera. It's really just expanding your horizon. That's all it is, really. Stay curious. Yes. But yes, enough. This this, let's end it because otherwise um, it's going to be another really long one. Um, No comment. (laughs) So um, we have an exercise, right? We have two exercises. Yes. Yes. Uh, so full details, as always, can be found on our blog, in the show notes. And if you... Ah, see, I, my, my voice also needs a break. Uh, if you subscribe to our newsletter, you can also find it in uh, your inbox. So for the, yeah, for the first exercise, we challenge you to take one of your favorite characters from one of your favorite novels to think about what will be different in the novel if one of these characters' identity markers was different. Or maybe two, right? Okay. Be creative. Yeah. And I believe for the second exercise, um, we invite you to have a look at your own work, think through the different identity markers that your characters have and how they might overlap or not and what makes or doesn't make sense for your character depending on where exactly their identity markers intersect. And when I say make sense, I'm talking about like how they act, what happens in the plot, et cetera. Yes, their behavior, the decisions they make, whether they do something stupid or smart, all of that. Yeah. Yes. Which can be really fun. Like it can so influence the plot as well, like the story arc, not just the character. Or whether, arc, it's whether they hate pink or not. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. So I will talk to you next week which is when we will be starting our discussion on marking the unmarked. I mean, I thought you were going to talk to me in like five minutes to make me read a certain book, but yes, we will talk next week. Yes, Um, we will do that off air. All right. So our discussion next week is on marking the unmarked. I'm looking forward to it and talk to you next week. Hey writers, this is Bethany. This morning, I ordered the third volume of Marielle's author journal and planner, 52 weeks of writing. That's the dark blue one. I love the color. 2022 be the third year I've used 52 weeks of writing to help me stay on top of my goals, remind myself just how much I really have done for all those imposter syndrome sufferers out there like me, and plan my week, quarter, and year in a sane fashion. It has absolutely worked, and it's so much fun to use with quotes to jumpstart my week and prompts to help me see my way through, you know, my own BS. 52 weeks of writing is available in paperback and PDF, and there will soon be ebook versions of all three volumes. You can start with any of the three volumes. There's no required order. Visit mswordsmith.nl forward slash journal to find the links to your favorite store 
and get started on your planning today. Thank you for listening. Music for this show was written and produced by Eric Mills. If you want to join the conversation, fill out our write and read a questionnaires. Both can be found in the show notes and on our website, representationmatters.art. That's dot A-R-T. If you want to be the first to hear when a new episode comes out, sign up to our newsletter. And if you found this helpful, please rate and review on your favorite podcast app to help other writers find us too.